Good morning again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 4. So we are winding down a series we've been doing for the last few months, uh, a series I'm calling A Journey in Joy, because the theme of Philippians is joy, joy and adversity, really. And so we've isolated every place in the epistle where Paul talks about joy and uh, made those our main points. So far, we've looked at joy in fellowship, joy in proclaiming the gospel, joy of faith, joy in unity, joy in service, joy in the Lord, and the seventh and final one in our series, so pray about what we're going to do next, is joy in giving. So let's just start with verse 10, Philippians 4, verse 10. Paul said, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So once again, we started this uh, a couple weeks ago, but here Paul is once again thanking them for the generous gift of money the Christians there in Philippi had given to him for his ministry. And let me just say at the outset that the only time I talk about money here at Calvary is when we come to a place in God's word where money is talked about. And that's pretty much it. There are several reasons for this. First of all, spiritual hucksters and charlatans on the radio and on TV are always talking about money, asking for money, and haranguing people for money. And I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want people to, they come to our church, oh, he's just another one of those guys, okay? Number two, if I pressure you into giving to God, you might give, but it's going to be out of constraint, not out of joy. And if it's not done with a joyful heart, you're not going to get rewarded for it, so why bother? And then number three, I don't want people to think that God needs your money. God is not a pauper who needs to come to us begging for money so that his precious work on earth can continue. So a lot of churches that kind of make people feel that way about God. Now, having said that, I probably haven't done you any favors either, though, through my reluctance to not talk about money very often. And that's because the subject of giving to God is something that is found in his word from cover to cover and is tied to the blessings of God. So by my reticence in talking about giving, I probably hindered you from some blessings. So when we come to a passage in his word where money is talked about, giving to God, we want to hit that. And that's what we're doing right now. And uh, I just want you to understand that this is a very important subject. Uh, again, the blessings of God are tied to our giving, blessings both here on earth and in heaven someday. And at very least, one of those blessings here on earth, earth is great joy. Uh, when giving is done in the right way, 
and from the right heart. There is great joy. That's our subject, uh, joy in giving. Guys, the Bible likens giving to God to the sowing of seeds in a field, which will result in a threefold harvest of blessings. Now, before we look at that, I want to just look at the basic principles or laws uh, that are tied to sowing and reaping in general. Let me just say there's three of these. The first one is you will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. God established this as a law of sowing and reaping at the time of creation when he said, let everything bring forth after its kind. Or in other words, if you sow corn, you're not going to reap wheat. If you sow tomato seeds, you're not going to reap watermelons. It's an immutable law of sowing and reaping. You, you reap what you sow. This law could also be applied spiritually as Paul does in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, where he said, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption or hell. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap, will reap everlasting life or heaven. Now, we could also apply this principle to marriage, family, ministry, or to life in general, by the way. And basically what we mean is you're only going to get out of these things what you put into it. So you're only going, out, only going to get out of your marriage or family or your ministry or your life in general what you put in, what you put in. You put in love, commitment, faithfulness, hard work, and so on. You'll reap those things. You'll reap those blessings. So first of all, guys, you will reap what you sow. Number two, you will reap after you sow. You think to yourself, isn't that a little basic? Well, it is, but hear me out. The harvest comes after the sowing, after the planting. And for a believer, that can be sometimes difficult to deal with. And that's because often we want to see fruit before we actually sow the seeds of kindness, unselfishness, and faithfulness in our marriages or in our walk with God in general. In other words, guys, many people want to harvest a great marriage and uh, a strong walk with God before they put the hard work into their marriages or into their walk with God. Uh, we did a marriage seminar a few weeks back. We talked about some of the things that need to be done if your marriage is going to prosper and flourish. You can go back, listen to that, uh, that uh, series. Uh, but also, when we talk about your walk with God, there's a lot of hard work that, that has to be put into your walk with God before you're going to reap the benefits of a good, strong relationship with God. Reading the Bible, studying the Bible, going to church, being in fellowship with other Christians, praying, and so on. If you think you're going to reap these blessings before the hard work it's kind of like the farmer who expects to reap or to harvest uh, his field before he does the hard work of cultivating his field which means you know breaking up the soil and clearing out the rocks and weeds before he sows the seeds that's not going to happen in farming and it's not going to happen with your life in general and yet it seems sometimes that many people think that the fruit should come first they would never say it that way they won't really articulate it that way, but they kind of feel that way, that the fruit should come first, which, which will then prove to them that putting in all that effort into their marriage or into their walk with God is worth it. This is why so many young people live together before getting married. What are they doing? Well, they want to see if it's worth it to put all the hard work into their marriage 
before they will commit to marriage, uh, I want to take this little relationship for a test spin. At the car dealership, they let me take that car out for a test drive. Why can't we apply that principle right here in this relationship? Let's live together for a few years, take this relationship for a spin, and if we see it's worth all the hard work and effort that goes into our marriage, then we'll commit ourselves. Look, this is where faith comes in. Faith comes in. The faith that believes that, as God has told us in his word, marriage is worth the hard work. The same goes for growing a strong relationship with God. It is worth the hard work. It's the same in farming. The farmer believes. This is where faith comes in. The farmer believes that all the hard work of cultivating his fields and planting the seeds will produce a harvest, will produce wonderful results, listen, in time, in time. It takes time to grow strong, healthy crops, even if it does, even as it does to grow a strong, healthy marriage and walk with God. So guys, there's two important qualities we need to uh, cultivate with regard to our walk with God in general, um, our ministries, our marriages, and so on. The first is we must learn to exercise faith. Faith that God is at work even if we can't see anything happening right away. You're praying for your spouse for years. He's an unbeliever, she's an unbeliever. You're praying them for, year, for them for years, but you're not seeing any results. You, you have to have faith. God's working, right? Because God has told us the effective, fervent prayers of the righteous accomplish great things. We have to take that by faith. God is working. He's doing something. Our prayers are not just bouncing off the ceiling, okay? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, how? By faith knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So the first quality we have to um, learn to exercise is faith. The second is patience. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary while doing good. In other words, be patient. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. I think James applies this to the return of Jesus Christ. God has given to us many, uh, many great and precious promises about our Christian lives in general, but about Jesus' return uh, in particular. First coming, 330-plus uh, prophecies of his first coming, over 500 in his word of a second coming. We take these by faith. But James tells us just as we have faith, that the farmer has faith, that when he does what he needs to do, cultivating, planting, uh, watering, and so on, that eventually uh, his fields are going to bring forth crops. He has, has that faith. And the same thing is true in our Christian life. Look, we're going to reap good things if we're patient and don't give up sowing. Whether we're talking about sowing the seeds of the gospel, um, you can read Psalm 126, verse 6. Those who go forth with seeds weeping will doubtless come again rejoicing, carrying their sheaves with them. It's a rough time to sow the seeds of the gospel. People are not open. Well, they've gotten a little open the last week with what's going on in Israel. But for the most part, we're living in the days of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, prophesied for 46 years, and I don't know if anybody ever got saved. He constantly wept because he knew judgment was coming. He was crying out to people, please re repent, get your life right with God before judgment comes. Nobody would listen to him until judgment finally did come. It's a hard 
time to be alive to share the gospel. We still do it because God's commanded us to do it. He gives us grace to do it. But as Jesus said, uh, with regard to the, to the uh, coming of the church, he said, you know, they're, you're going to sow the seeds and they're going to bring forth a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold, the decreasing yield. Why is that? Because the closer we get to Christ's return, uh, the more lawlessness would abound and evil and so on. We're seeing that. People's hearts would become more and more hard, more and more hard to the, to the gospel. Good soil is out there. We just have to keep being faithful and sowing the good seeds. So, you know, you go forth with your seeds, weeping because nobody's listening. You're going to come back rejoicing. God's going to bring a harvest. But, guys, this also works in the negative. There are people who are involved in certain activities that they don't see anything bad happening to them right away. You know, they're, they're taking drugs. Uh, in my generation, was smoking cigarettes, selling first service. I'm old enough to remember that, you know, back, you know, right when I was a kid, everyone smoked. And, and it was just a thing that people did. And then they started coming out with this research that it was bad for you. And when they initially began to, to tell people that cigarette smoking is bad for you, people would laugh. They'd mock that. They, well, I've been smoking for 30 years. Nothing bad has happened to me yet. And five years later, they were dead. But they, they, they didn't know it at the time, you know. But that's the mentality today in so many ways, right? Uh, whether they're taking drugs or involved with Internet pornography or messing with the occult, uh, you come to them and you try to warn them. And people are like, well, look, it, nothing bad's happened to, me, happened to me yet. This is a, the big thing I've seen is with regard to um, uh, office flirting, you know, flirting with coworkers, just harmless fun. Nobody means anything by getting on Facebook, connecting with old boyfriends and girlfriends, and kind of doing a little Facebook flirting. Not, you, you warn people about that. Oh, you're being too much, you know. And, and I have known people that have said that, and eventually they their marriage fell to adultery. This is a lie of the devil. It's just harmless fun. Uh, nothing bad's happened to you so far. Come on. They're, being, they're just getting themselves too worked up over this. It's, it's okay. Nothing bad has happened to you yet. Again, harmless fun. Look, what's obvious in farming should be obvious in other areas of our lives, but often is not. When you talk about farming, what the farmer sows today is not going to reap today. We all know that. The harvest comes later. But in other areas of life, people make the mistake of not seeing the same way. In other words, if I sow irresponsible or sinful actions in my life today, I'm not going to reap the consequences immediately, but I'm often going to reap the consequences. Often it takes years before the lung cancer shows up, or the cirrhosis of the liver, or the venereal disease, or the marriage fails, or their world implodes. You don't reap before you sow, that's true. But even then, you often don't reap right away either. Again, the classic mistake that many people make is thinking that because they aren't suffering any negative consequences immediately. In fact, I've talked to people that I've tried to warn about certain behaviors, and they come back to me and say, you know, well, you're talking about God being upset with my actions and it's not good and eventually he's going to have to judge me or whatever. Uh, look, not only have I never, I haven't seen God judging me, he's blessing me. Look at my business. Look at this or that. My life is being blessed. You're talking about 
God is upset with this behavior. Often what's going on is they're misinterpreting their circumstances because, as God said in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the goodness of God often leads us to repentance. In other words, just because a person starts getting involved in sin or turns uh, to compromise in their lives, going against something God has said, and God doesn't immediately bring judgment into their lives, they make the mistake of thinking, well, God's not upset with me. Maybe God approves. Maybe he's blessing this behavior. I mean, I know we're not married, but we love each other, so why can't we live together, right? We're going to get married eventually, but right now, it's just not right for us. And, uh, but, but God's blessing, look at we both have great jobs, and we're in good health, and this and that. So I, I think God's smiling on our relationship. No, that's a lie of the devil. God will never bless you in your sin. He might bless you in spite of your sin, because he wants his goodness to eventually bring you to repentance. But people often make the wrong conclusions, come to the wrong conclusions. Let me just say this to you. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking you can violate anything God says in his word and not eventually reap the consequences. You will. It's just a matter of when. So why push it? You know it's wrong. You read the Bible. You know what God has said. Why are you putting him to the foolish test? Right? So first of all, guys, you will reap what you sow. And that goes for the good and the bad. You, you sow good things into your life and into your relationships, you're going to tend to reap good things. You sow bad things, you'll reap the bad. You will reap what you sow. Number two, you will reap after you sow. Sometimes the blessings don't come immediately, and sometimes the consequences don't either. And number three, you're going to reap more than you sow. More than you sow. In other words, if you plant one apple seed, you're going to get an entire apple tree filled with apples, each containing many seeds, right? For one apple seed, that's a pretty good deal. Plant one apple seed, you got a tree eventually that bears many apples, each containing many apple seeds. You reap more than you sow. If you plant one grain of wheat, a whole stalk grows up containing many grains of wheat. In fact, Jesus himself applied this spiritually. He said in John 12, verse 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Using a farm, farming metaphor, obviously, illustration, where he said, look, if you take a seed, we'll say a, a wheat seed, and put it on a table, you can leave it there and you know, in the house, no sunlight, no water, no dirt, just on a table. It could stay there forever. Okay? If you take it outside, bury it in the ground, water it, it dies, it germinates. And then it brings forth much fruit. He used that as an illustration of our life spiritually. If you want to make, you want to live your life for yourself, uh, just do, do your own thing, it's your life, you want to do with it what you please, you can do that. And you will die alone. You will have no fruit to show for your life on the earth. Not eternal fruit. If, on the other hand, you yield your life to Jesus Christ, Give it to him. Die to self. I'm yours, Lord. Use me for whatever you want. You die to self. God uses you. He brings forth from your life much fruit on earth, much rewards in heaven, and so on. Choice is yours, right? Jesus told us that. you got to count the cost. But again, guys, um, we can use this whole idea in the negative, okay? So 
in the positive, you die to self. God uses your life to touch many other lives. You bring forth much fruit, many souls for the kingdom. And while you're blessed on earth, you're going to be blessed in heaven. There's a negative application to that. Maybe you've known people where they just had a destructive personality, drug addicts, or whatever, right? And, you know, you pleaded with them to stop with the drugs, to, you know, get clean, and so on. And maybe they've come back to you and said something to the effect, look, I'm only hurting myself. Leave me alone. Well, they're not just hurting themselves. What they do to themselves is a ripple effect. It touches all the people they love and are concerned about them. Different people in their lives, different things. Years ago, somebody said, and I've never forgotten this, we never sin alone. We never sin alone. And so you know what? You're going to reap more than you sow. You may sow into your own life destructive behavior, but what's going to happen is your life is going to touch other lives and many lives will be often touched, damaged, or even destroyed. I think about couples that can't seem to get their marriages on track and eventually, you know, they have children and eventually they get divorced. That divorce is a ripple effect. A lot of times children of divorce uh, have uh, marriages that end in divorce. Um, it just That's the way sin works. It just affects so many other things, right? All right. So as we said earlier, kind of set this up. Giving to God is a subject that permeates the Bible from cover to cover and is tied to the blessings of God both in heaven someday but also on earth right now. The Bible likens giving to God to the sowing of seeds in a field, which, as we said earlier, will result in a threefold harvest of blessings. We're only going to get to the first one today, maybe finish up the other two next week. What is the first blessing, the most important blessing that is harvested? Well, it blesses the heart of God. It blesses the heart of God. That's the first blessing. When you're talking about a life of sowing seeds, good seeds, giving to God, and so on. It blesses the heart of God. Here in Philippians 4, verse 18, Paul is writing to the Philippians in part to thank them for the gift, actually there's several, for the gifts of money that they had given to him. And Paul calls it, now remember, Paul's a rabbi. He was a, he's a theologian. And much of his writings, he's touching on uh, Old Testament laws and principles, which he's bringing over and saying, look, Remember what the law said about this? Don't muzzle the ox which treads out the, the grain. You think God was concerned about oxen as much? as it's, That's a principle. You know, that somebody who is, uh, who is serving God and being uh, in, as a servant of God needs to live off of the gospel and, and that kind of thing. Principles, right? Well, here he talks about their gifts given to him. And then he, for his ministry, and then he calls, the, calls it a sweet, smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul here uses the language of worship. If you study the Old Testament, oftentimes when God talked about them bringing their animals to him, that was a form of worship, animal sacrifice, right? You killed the animal, you put it on the altar of sacrifice, and you offered it to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. Well, who doesn't like barbecue? Who doesn't love to smell barbecue, right? God loves barbecue. Hey, that's biblical, all right? Um, but 
But Paul uses that language of a sweet-smelling aroma, sacrifice to God. It's the language of worship. And he's drawing from the Old Testament. And, and what Paul is telling us is that giving God a gift. Now, we, we can't technically give God money. Uh, what was the old saying, the old joke, uh, when somebody was asked how much they give to God? Uh, he said, well, I take all my money and put it on a plate. And I throw it up into the air. And whatever God can catch, he keeps, and the rest that falls down to the ground is mine. Well, you, don't, you can't really give God anything. He doesn't need anything, and we don't have anything that he really wants except our love and fellowship. But what he does look at is when we give money to help others. That's giving to God. In fact, the Bible says in not a few places, many places, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord and I'll repay them. Giving people financial help in a time of need or using that money to help people in ministry on the mission field or serving God right here in our country. You're giving to God. The Philippians had given to Paul. And Paul said, you know, I didn't need it. I didn't ask you for it. I'm glad you gave it because fruit abounds to your account. You're going to get blessings in heaven for this. But in the eyes of God, by giving to the work of God in the earth, you're worshiping him. Yeah, the sense that was thrown like a sweet-smelling aroma, the fragrance of what? Worship. The fragrance of worship. That's what he was talking about, guys. Turn to John 12. When we did John 12, verses 1 to 6, we did a series called True Worship. I'm only going to touch on the first point. You can go online and read, uh, read, listen to the whole series if you'd like. I would encourage you to do that since worship is a very important subject. I'll tell you why in a second. But if you turn to John 12, I just want to read the first three verses. Then six days before the Passover, now this will be the final Passover of Jesus' life before the cross, so he is six days from the cross. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one who sat at the table with him. Then Martha took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Guys, of all the places in the Bible where worship is talked about, this is the only place in the, in the scriptures that I can think of where somebody actually exemplified worship. Actually exemplified worship. When Mary of Bethany took the alabaster flask of precious oil of spikenard and poured it upon Jesus, preparing his body for burial, she became, listen, and the Holy Spirit lifts her up. Understand that. She became a living illustration of what a life of worship truly means. Why is it so important that we understand what a life of worship is all about? It's important because Jesus told us it was important. He told us in John 4, the Father is seeking true worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And in fact, guys, the whole goal of all redemptive history is to gather into heaven a community of true worshipers. If you ask the average Christian, um, what is the goal of, uh, of Jesus you know, what was the goal of Jesus dying on the cross? Or what was the goal of redemptive history? To keep us from going to hell. No, that wasn't the goal. That was a necessary byproduct to reach the ultimate goal. 
if the ultimate goal of redemptive history was to keep people out of hell, I got news for you. Here's a better solution. Don't create anybody, God. Then nobody goes to hell. No, God created mankind and knew we were going to fall and sent Jesus to die for the sins of all people that whoever wanted to be gathered together someday in heaven around the throne could worship him for all eternity, a community of true worshipers. And I'm telling you, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. There is never going to be a more exciting existence than being around his throne and worshiping him. I do think we will have other responsibilities. I do think, though, we are going to rendezvous at the throne all the time for worship services. And Revelation 21 kind of implies we're going to go on missions in heaven and I don't know. He said, what kind of missions? I have no idea. I don't think that laying on a cloud, playing a harp for all eternity is an exciting way to think of eternity. I think it's be much more exciting than that. I think it's going to be some kind of an interdimensional existence uh, where you're going to get from place to place, not at the speed of light. That's way too slow. The speed of thought. Uh, I don't know what it's, God's got in mind. If, if six days of creation produced the world we're living in, not what man's done to it, just the beauty of this world, Six days? Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and receive it to myself, right? That was 2,000 years ago. What is this place like? He's preparing for us, right? Let's chew on that for a while. Um, but Revelation 5, verses 8 to 14 tells us that the goal of all of redemptive history is to gather around the throne a community of true worshipers. Guys, Mary of Bethany was a true worshiper, a true worshiper. What can Mary teach us about the nature of worship, of true worship? It's a lot of stuff passing off as worship. It's not, okay? Jesus said to the, to the um, Samaritan woman in John 4, uh, Woman, you worship what you don't know. We know what we worship. Salvation is of the Jews. So there is false worship, Jesus alluded to it, and there's true worship. There's a lot of false worship out there today. But what can Mary of Bethany teach us about the nature of true worship? Well, and again, we're just going to touch on the first point. Go online, listen to the series, True Worship. I think it's worth your while. But first and foremost, she teaches us that, listen, worship is costly. Worship, true worship, is costly. Again, verse 3, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. Let me stop there. Guys, it cost Mary something very precious to worship her Lord in this way. In fact, we are told in verse 5 that this pound of spikenard was worth uh, about 300 denarii, which was almost a year's wage for a working man, a soldier, a carpenter. They made uh, a denarius, denarius a day, uh, the singular denarius, uh, so 300 would be almost a year's wage. The first lesson we learn from Mary's act of worship is that worship involves sacrifice by giving to God what is most precious to us. Again, most precious to us, not the leftovers of our time, our energy, or our possessions. Guys, that's what the tithe was all about. I don't believe we are under the Old Testament law of tithing. That's because I believe that as our master, he owns everything. I don't give to God 10% of what I've produced 
and I keep the 90 for me. It's all his. I'm a slave of Christ. Tithing was a law for a free man who owned property, produced things, and so on. Everything I own belongs to Jesus. Not, Lord, um, here's your 10%, and I'm going to keep the 90 for me. No, Lord, here's my paycheck. How much do you want this week? How much can I keep? And sometimes you may say, this week I want you to give your entire paycheck to that family over there. They just went through a bad fire. Uh, they're, they're struggling. They've got, the mother has cancer. They don't know where their rent's coming from or the mortgage. I want you to give your entire check to that family. And you do it with joy because, Lord, you're going to take care of us. Wow. You're about ready to teach me and my family a great lesson in faith. If you want my check, it's yours anyways. I'll give it. And then you know what we need. I just trust you to provide. Wow. Those are some of the most powerful lessons in faith I've ever learned. Just trusting God. So, But true worship involves giving to God. And not the leftovers of our, of our time. After we spent our week doing everything we want to do, maybe i got a few minutes left. At the end of the day, I'll pray. I'll read my Bible for five minutes. Or if I have any time this week, I'll go to church. Or after I've used my money this week to go out to eat a few times and buy this or that and go to the show. If I have a few bucks left, I may give God something. It's not giving to God the leftovers of our time, our possessions, our energy, and so on. Mary gave the most precious thing she owned to her Lord. What was that? In her case, it was this oil of spikenard. You say, well, what is that exactly? Well, spikenard was made from something called nard. Okay, good. Got that? All right. All right, well, what is nard? Uh, from what I understand, it comes from a, from a flowering plant that grows up in the Himalayas between China and Tibet. It had to be brought out on the backs of camels down the Himalayan mountains all the way back to Israel where it was made into a costly perfumed oil and placed in an alabaster flask. Needless to say, it was a very costly procedure which yielded a very precious commodity. As we said just a minute ago, this one pound was worth almost a year's wage. Here's something else that most Christians don't understand when they read the story. Okay, They know it's expensive what she gave to Jesus. But what they don't often realize, and I know you guys do because we've taught on this, this oil of spikenard was probably Mary's dowry. Was probably Mary's dowry. In those days, if they wanted to make an investment for the future, there weren't any stocks or IRAs or savings bonds. So instead, they would invest in gold and silver and precious stones and even sometimes in precious ointments and perfumes. This is apparently what Mary had done. She had made a very costly investment in this spikenard to be saved as a dowry. Obviously, her dad by this time was dead. So she had to provide a dowry for herself. But in this act of true love and worship, she poured it all out on Jesus, anointing him for burial. Now listen, I know to the world, but even to a lot of Christians today, this would seem over-the-top extravagant. Uh, didn't Judas challenge her? Lord, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? Like he cared about the poor. He held, John says he holding the money back and was dipping into it, stuff that was put in. He didn't care about the poor. It's poor Judas, mostly. Um, but in a true act of love and worship, worship, she poured it all out into Jesus, anointing him for burial. And again, to the average Christian even, 
Her worship seemed extravagant in the extreme. But you know what? When you're talking about worshiping Jesus, can anything be too costly to give to him in light of what he gave for us? Now, guys, if this was her dowry, and I believe it was, then culturally speaking, it meant she was pretty much giving up any hope of ever getting married and having a family. That was a big deal back then. Big deal. In that culture, a woman without a dowry wasn't likely to find a husband and find a man who was willing to marry her. I mean, what a tremendous sacrifice Mary made to worship Jesus. Look at what it cost her. And this idea that she was pretty much the only one who knew Jesus was going to be crucified, even though he had said it numerous times to his own disciples, that he was going to go to Jerusalem where evil men would crucify him, but on the third day he would rise again. Even though he mentioned that to his disciples three, maybe four times on that resurrection Sunday morning, his resurrection took them by surprise. They were completely blindsided. In fact, when the women came back from the tombs that was empty, they thought they were lying. They were, you know, they were just making this up. It was a fairy tale. But not Mary, though. You see, every time you find Mary in the New Testament, she's always seen sitting at the feet of Jesus. Always seen sitting at the feet of Jesus. She loved him. She hung on every word. She had no agenda. The disciples followed him because they wanted to be great in the kingdom. They argued about that through the course of his ministry. Which one was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who was going to sit in your right hand and left hand? They had an agenda, and their agenda blinded them to really listening to what Jesus was saying to them. I'm not saying they weren't saved, but were they carnal? Yeah. Now, they would go on to be spiritual men, but not at this point. Mary, she was a spiritual woman. She had no agenda. She was not following Jesus because of anything she wanted from him except his love. And so when he talked about going to the cross, she listened. And here she's anointing him for burial. Anointing him for burial. This was a true sacrificial offering of true worship. Worshiping Jesus by giving to him what was most precious to her. It seemed that Mary understood well what King David had expressed so many years earlier. You remember when David um, counted the people. They weren't his to count. You don't. I don't come over to your house and count your stuff. Right? You count what belongs to you. And somewhere along the line, David got the impression that the people of Israel were his. Well, I'm the king. Well, you're not the king of kings. And so he numbered the people, and God brought a judgment upon the land. And the angel of death reached Jerusalem. People began to die. David saw the angel standing above Jerusalem with a drawn sword, and he cried out, God, don't take out my sin on these people. These are just sheep. This is my sin, Lord. Take it out on me. And God had the angel put the sword back in its shield, and David wanted to offer God a sacrifice. Remember, the offerings were worship. And so he sees the angel standing right above the threshing floor of Aruna. We call it Mount Moriah today, or Calvary. But back in those days, it belonged to a man named Aruna. It was his threshing. You always had a threshing floor lifted up. You wanted the wind because you threw the, the, the wheat and the, and the chaff in the air. The chaff was lighter. It blew away, and the wheat 
heavier fell down. You did that over and over again until finally you separated the wheat from the chaff. So they always did it up high. That's why Gideon was so bummed out. He had to do it in the valley because the Midianites were waiting for them to do all the hard work and come in and take all the grain. So he's out on the, you know, in the low spot, not feeling good about everything. So he, David approaches the ruins because he's out there threshing his, his grain. I want to buy your threshing floor to offer a sacrifice to God. And Aruna said, David, it's yours. I give it to you. And the oxen, use them for the offering. The, and the cart, use that for the wood for the fire. I give it all to you. And David rightly said, no, but I will certainly buy it from you for money because I will not give to my God an offering, an act of worship that costs me nothing. David understood that when you're talking about true, and Mary understood, true worship is costly. It's costly. And notice something that Mary didn't open this alabaster flask of oil of spikenard. She didn't open it, dab a little bit from it, you know, took her finger, got a little oil on her finger and dabbed Jesus on you know, either cheek, you know, and then closed it up and kept the rest for herself. She couldn't have done that if, even if she wanted to. If you know Mary of Bethany, you know she never would have wanted to do this. She couldn't have done that anyways because once these alabaster flasks were filled, and usually it was very costly, oils and things, they were sealed shut. They were sealed shut. And the only way to open them, listen, was to break them open. And they were sealed shut because air would cause the perfume to spoil, become rancid, okay? So they put the very precious oil, in this case oil with spikenard in the flask, sealed it shut, which meant the only way you could open it would be to break it open. And once you broke it open, you either used all of it right away or it went bad. And that was the Holy Spirit's way of teaching us that when it comes to true worship, we don't just dab on the Lord a little bit here and there and save the rest of our time, money, and resources for ourselves. If we're going to lay our lives to the altar of sacrifice, if we're going to be broken when it comes to how we worship God, He wants all of us. He doesn't want us to pass out little pieces of our time and uh, our lives to Him. Well, we keep most of it for ourselves. In other words, what is being spoken here of is total commitment not holding anything back but giving it all to jesus you can turn to romans 12 as we wind this down romans 12 but i'm going to read it to you out of the niv because i like the way they word this you know it but it comes through i think a little more powerfully in the niv so in romans 12 verse 1 here's what paul said remember he was a rabbi therefore i, I urge you brothers in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices now paul had in mind what was called the burnt offering if you go to leviticus i think that's the first one of the offerings the burnt offering what was it you bring an animal to god you, the priest kills it it was the the carcass is placed on the altar of sacrifice and it's completely burned up to god completely there's nothing left it spoke of total consecration there were other offerings like the peace offering animal was killed was barbecued and part of the, uh, of the animal was burned up completely for God. The other part was given back to you. You went off, under the, off to the side, 
and you ate off of the same animal that God ate off of. In that culture, when you ate with somebody, you became one with them. Spoke of peace. Often if two enemies uh, brokered a peace agreement, they would have a meal together, signifying now they were no longer two, they were one. That was the idea. So God did have sacrifices where it was part went to God, part went to the person who brought the sacrifice. They kept part of it. Not in the, not in the um, burnt offering, offering of consecration. Everything was burned up to God. Everything was given to God. Our lives are to be, to be living sacrifices. In other words, uh, the sacrifice of consecration, the burnt offering. That's what Paul's talking about. He said, so I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Listen, this is your spiritual act of worship. I checked the other translations, and the idea is that the translators are trying to incorporate into this idea everything that's in view in this Greek word. Service, it was used of the Levites, how they served God. But they also served God by leading worship to God. So that's where the translators said, look, when you offer your bodies the sum total of your life to God as a living sacrifice, this is your spiritual act of service, devotion, worship. It's all encompassed in that idea. Look, and we're done. Let me just say this, we'll close. When I think how valuable our time is today, folks, I know you're busy. Because we're so busy today, Sometimes we'd rather give God money than to actually serve him physically. Uh, let me write you a check. I don't have time to go down and help with the food pantry. Let me just write you a check, okay? Hey, nothing wrong with a check. But the idea is that it's so much more rewarding to get physically involved in, in ministry. But when I think of how valuable our time is today and how we often measure out, you know, Mary didn't do this. Again, she didn't just dab the oil on Jesus. He poured it all out. But how often we measure out small amounts of our time each week, our resources to give to God, you know, church and devotions if we have time. But the rest of our time we lavishly spend on ourselves. It makes me wonder if we really understand what it means to worship the Lord through a life of total surrender, Devotion and commitment, you know, giving to God our best, not the leftovers of our day. Guys, worship is costly, which means it requires sacrifice. And let's not forget that when Paul wrote this to the Philippians, um, they were living under Roman rule. Rome, as I was telling first service, was very polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. They didn't care what god you worshipped. Honestly, the Roman government could care less what god you worshipped. But they wanted you to be completely loyal to one God, which was Caesar. And that's why every year, once a year, every Roman citizen had to stand before a bust of Caesar that had a flame in front of it. And they were required by Roman law to take a pinch of incense, put it into the flame, and, and, uh, and, and proclaim Caesar is Lord. They can go worship any other God you want. As long as your first loyalty was to Rome, to Caesar... You can worship any other God you want. Christians wouldn't do that because Jesus is Lord. And they wouldn't worship or even say anyone else is Lord but him. So they were rounded up and they were killed by the hundreds of thousands. It cost them quite a bit in the first century to worship Jesus. I think about those living under communism 
or in Islamic countries. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many Christians over the centuries have been put to death for their faith, for the privilege of worshiping Jesus. And so guys, the very first blessing we reap through our giving is that it blesses the heart of God. And that should be all of our passion. Jesus said, I, I do always those things that please the Father. You know that you're growing as a Christian when your passion is to bring joy to the heart of God in everything you do. It's not me anymore. It's not what is God going to do for me. It's how can I live for him. That's, that's when you know you're growing. When you start leaving the carnality of the wilderness behind and you've entered into the life of the Spirit, which is a life of sacrifice and giving and, and putting God first, okay? But giving to God, it blesses the heart of God. It's the first benefit. And this is especially true when it comes to supporting ministries that uh, those out in the mission field are involved in, as we just said. Or we support the work of our local church. There's a lot of things that we're involved in as a church. Hopefully you know. I mean, we've always been very uh, missions-minded. Yes, we have. But we've always focused also on what ministries are being done in our communities, like, uh, you know, like Karis. Saving, saving children from abortion and so on and so forth or just getting the gospel out. We've always been that way, helping our local food pantries and so on. But guys, true worship is giving to God. God doesn't need it. He allows us to give it, but we give it to him by helping others. Whether we're talking about helping them get the gospel, helping them have enough to eat, helping them with shelter or something else that we can help with. Um, as in Paul's case, how they sent him money to uh, do the work of ministry God had called him to do and so on. Um, guys, God considers it worshiping him when we do this. We give to him. Why? Because we're lifting him up. I'll end with this thought. When you give to God and other people see that. Now, we don't do it. We don't sound the trumpet. I'm just saying that when you're giving to the Lord and, and you know, sometimes people are going to find out about it. Well, what are you doing that for? We're in the midst of, uh, of inflation. I mean, what are you doing? Why are you giving? You, you could be using that money for you and your family. I could. I choose to use a lot of it to honor God and to glorify him. And when you do that, you're lifting him up. And people are drawn to you. What, it seems so strange in this selfish world we're living in. Well, when I lift God up by exalting him, where he's been so good to me, I just love to give to the Lord that others can be blessed, you know? It glorifies him. It honors him. And so we will continue, God willing, next time, looking at the joy of giving. And please keep our next study in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for being so kind and wonderful and generous to us. That, Lord, you, you've given us so much, and then you allow us to take a little bit of what you've given us and give it back to you as if it belonged to us in the first place. It's all yours, Lord. Thank you. And, Father, we just pray that you'll continue blessing these studies in your word. And there is great joy in giving, Lord. Give us grace to be generous and sacrificial in what we give to you by helping others. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.